From 11FS, I'm Sarah Kachansky, and this is Fintech Insider News. Today we bring you Monzo aims to crowdfund £20 million from their customers, the Swift Institute calls for gender diversity in fintech, and does anyone want a contactless coffee cup? All this and much more on today's show. Welcome to episode 275 of Fintech Insider. We are coming to you live from the 11FS offices in WeWork Oldgate. But for the very last time, by the time you hear this episode, we'll be getting settled down in our new offices. So next week, we'll be coming to you live from Devonshire Square. But Oldgate Tower, we will miss you. My name is Sarah Kachansky, and I'll be your host for today. And I'm joined by my colleague and co-host, Simon Taylor. Simon, how are you doing today? Really well, thank you. And uh, been having an interesting week. Been talking a lot about the future of mortgages, a lot about the future of point of sale lending. Uh, exciting times and lots of fintech news as always. Yeah, no, lots of exciting planning going on at um, 11FS HQ. Um, it will be revealed next, let's say next week. It won't be revealed next week, next year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so don't forget, if you have any questions for us or a new story you catch you want us to cover, then do drop us an email at podcast11fs.com or find us on social media. As always, we're not alone today. We are joined by three fantastic guests, all who are making return appearances. Very excited about this. So we have Emily Nicole, who is a technology reporter at City AM. How are you today, Emily? I'm doing great, thanks. How are you? Um, we have Val Christensen, back by popular demand, Director of Growth and Comms at Oak North. Hi. Have you got a new title? Uh, actually, that was like a long, a long time ago, but... Um... I just haven't read it out loud, I think. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, and last, but by no means least, we have Sophie Winwood, who does have a new title, Investment Associate at Anthemis Group. How are you today, Sophie? Good, it's good to be back. I feel like I haven't been on here for a while, so yeah. I mean, I haven't been on here for a while, That's very so true. this is going to be exciting. <laughs> All right, let's get on with the news. So our first story today was in fact written by Emily. Um, so it comes from CTAM, and the story is that Monzo crowdfunding for the last chunk of its Series E funding round. So the target this time is £20 million. Um, Existing Monzo investors will get early access to the round from the 3rd of December. Uh, The round will then be opened up to other Monzo customers who can invest up to £2,000. Um, this isn't their first bash at this. Previously, they've raised over four million from two other crowdfunding rounds. Um, in fact, their last round in 2016 broke the record for the fastest equity raise, with one million pounds funded in 96 seconds. Um, this is the second part of a round, as we said. So, Monzo raised 85 million pounds in October from VCs, General Catalyst, and Excel, and existing investors such as Passion Capital and Stripe. Um, the valuation is more than one billion pounds. So, Emily, given you wrote this, do you want to give us the first take? <laughs> um, well, I think what's interesting actually in this one is that a lot of people weren't sure whether Monzo would go back to the crowd um, because earlier this year, Revolut raised and they didn't. They've said they, they won't in future. Um, but I think having spoken to Monzo about it, for them, it's really important to give their customers a piece of the product always. And so for them, it's not really about raising money this time. What it's about is getting their customers involved in the company. And so even this time, having gone up to 20 million, that was a really big jump for them because once you go over, I think it's now 8 million with the updated rules, you have to build a prospectus to do a crowdfunding round of that size, which is a really big investment on Monzo's behalf. So it really shows their dedication to allowing new people, well, existing customers anyway, to get in a chunk of yeah. the company. 
I mean, I don't know. I think so. It was actually around this time last year that they were recruiting for a crowdfunding lead. And you might remember it was the same time they were also recruiting for a CFO and then let slip in the job description about how you'll be doing an IPO in three to four years time. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I knew that there was going to be, and they said it very, and they said it would be, you know, a record breaking um, crowdfund. So I was, I was sure that there would be something coming down the line. And obviously um, now that's come to fruition. Interestingly about Passion Capital. So this, um, uh, they've actually set up a fund uh, specifically for employees who, uh, or Monzo employees who want to sell their shares later down the line. So obviously at the higher valuation, then um, you can sell your shares to, you know, institutional investors who might want to get a bigger stake. But that's something that's been missing, actually, in, in this market, really. I mean, we've seen some attempts at secondary markets, but there are a lot of people who've invested quite early on and, and have been have been tied in, you know, as we said, you know, Monzo's been doing very well. And in fact, in their, um, in, on the prospectus page, it says, you know, if you'd bought in at X in the last round, it would now be worth Y. But of course, that's, that's all hype until they actually do something. It's on it paper. The, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's not realised, is it? Um, I think what's nice about this story as well, it's kind of like a double fintech win because we've got Monzo, but we've also got Crowdcube. And um, I think you're saying that um, it's actually one of the biggest, if not the biggest round. Um, I think Brewdog was the other one that was raiding about this amount of money. Um, And I quite like how they've set it up. It's almost like when you go and get Glastonbury tickets and there's like a (laughs) pre-sale and then there's like the sale and they've got at the bottom of the website, like counting down until the time. It's like the hype around it it's it's really clever there's theater there isn't there and yeah. i think that theater is uh it's really powerful um but I, I like emily's point as well about involving the customers i think that sort of uh really speaks to uh kind of dog fooding eating your own dog food like if you're about transparency and you're about including your customers like that for a long time there have been you know sort of the cooperatives and the member-owned organizations your nationwide your co-ops and others who who really had a a, a different uh, had a brand differentiator uh, you see it with john lewis and others uh, who use how they're owned as a way of kind of you know really helping them navigate uh, how they position themselves as a brand, and and I think that contrast with Revolut is quite powerful because mm. you know, there, there is a there is a differentiator here, um, and it's sharing the proceeds of growth. Um, and how m- many opportunities are there for you know? person on the street to really get access to big tech growth and that sort of financial inclusion uh, thing running theme running all the way through it I think is is really really powerful. Well we actually spoke to Monzo's head of marketing Tristan Thomas to get his thoughts on crowdfunding why they're doing it now why the target is so much larger than all the previous targets and what the money is going to be used for so let's hear from him now. So this is our biggest round of crowdfunding yet. In 2016, we ran a round for uh, £1 million, which sold out in 96 seconds, and then uh, last year did a round of £2.5 Both of those were hugely successful, and we had far more demand than we were able to offer shares for. And so this year, we wanted to do something a bit different, to try and ensure as many people as possible could uh, invest, and as many of our customers could invest. So we went out and have written a prospectus, which allows us to crowdfund much more money, uh, more than the EU limit of 8 million euros. And so in this round, we're crowdfunding 20 million pounds. So this round forms part of our Series E fundraising round, which we announced about a month ago. And so out of that round, um, which is from big venture capital firms, we've carved out this 20 million pounds for crowdfunding investors. Obviously, the hope is that we fill it. It's very, very hard to guess. And so in the last round, we know that £12 million was pledged by customers and we were only able to take two and a half. So the hope is by having £20 million, we'll definitely be able to take as many people as we possibly can. Um, and we've set the limit at £2,000 per person to ensure lots of people get part of it. 
Um, if we don't meet it, that's totally fine. Um, people will still get their shares and our existing VC investors will take the remainder. They're very, very keen. In terms of what we're doing with the money, this forms, as, a, as I said, part of the big round, which is £105 million in total and is mainly focused on growth here in the UK over the next 12 months or so. So continuing to invest in customer support, continuing to invest in product and engineering to con- build new features um, and sort of shore up the features that we've got and and then growth out into new markets. So we're at about 1.2 million customers now and aiming to get uh, millions more next year. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for speaking to us, Tristan. Um, so sticking with Revolut and in fact, sticking with Emily. So I promise you this was not this was not organised in advance. Um, but the next story is again from City AM and it's that Revolut has got licences in both Japan and Singapore. So um, the licences will enable it to operate in a similar fashion to its UK business. So it's going to maintain partnerships with local banks. Basically, it hasn't got banking licences in those places. It's, it's got the equivalent of, sort of e-money licences. Um, it's hoping to launch in the Asia Pacific region in Q1 2019 um, with over 50 thousand users already on its waiting list. Um, this launch will happen ahead of the US launch, despite Revolut's original plan to launch in the US inside 2018. Um, it seems likely that that has been pushed back because it's too expensive. Um, Emily, do you want to give us your hot take on this one? Um, yeah, so when I wrote this one, actually, I was really keen to stress the whole that it's not a banking license. It's a, similar to an e-money um, because that's often been a point of discussion around Revolut in the UK and elsewhere that are they getting a banking license in the UK? Are they not? Now they're going for one in Luxembourg. Now they're heading to the US. What are they getting over there? Um, and it seems like sticking with e-money type licenses is the way forward for them. It allows them to scale quickly and efficiently without getting tied down with the capital investment that a banking license requires. Um, So it's just more of the same for them, but in a new region in this instance. Um, But on the side of US expansion, I found it particularly interesting that they've said that they're going to be launching in Japan and Singapore next year ahead of when they'll actually go live in the US, despite the US originally being promised a lot earlier than even right now. Um, that seems to be getting pushed back time, time again. Um, who knows when it will happen? I think once their head of marketing, Chad, told me they were trying to get licensed in all 50 states, which is Goodness. a very <laughs> strong <laughs> process. I think that's probably going to be a future future target now. But, it, but it's doable if you've got enough money and time. Um, and uh, having time in a startup world is having more cash to burn. And they just raised a massive amount of money from SoftBank. So it appears to be... They did raise a lot of money from DST, who are Hong Kong-based. So Ooh. it does make sense if you look at that direction. I know they're also looking at getting licenses in Australia. So they're definitely going... Asia. Yeah. Um, and I completely agree with Emily. I think it's just easier to go that way first and then they can go the back US. and look at the States later. Yeah. And I know that they've had people based in Japan working on this since I used to be in my old place in Altfire. Like they've had it since April, at least last year, people based in Japan working really hard on this. So it's a big achievement for them, I think, to have finally made it. Um, but on the SoftBank side, Yes, it's only rumours, but I'm pretty sure we all know that it's actually happening. Um, well, well, yeah, yeah, I've heard other things about those rumours as well. So I, I think it's... happen. Well, yeah, well, I've heard that the rumours were started by some people who were just interested in starting rumours, um, if that makes sense. Well, either way, the fact is they're raising money and much sooner than any of us thought they would need to. And it's really because 
this whole expansion in all directions at once is a cash-burning exercise, really. And it's a fundamentally different approach. Uh, you've got Monzo doubling down on the UK um, and trying to grow users in one market and, and kind of nail that. And you've got Revolut going the opposite direction of get into as many markets as possible and gain user acquisition that way. And their raw number of users is a, is a lot, lot higher as a result. Um, but it is you know a cash-burning strategy. What I like about this as an observer is you get to watch both of these strategies play out and sort of pick between them both and sort of see there are pros and cons to both. And actually, given what they do and the customer they serve, being about foreign exchange, for Revolut, it makes an awful lot of sense that they'd want to be in a lot of uh, countries versus doing everyday banking. So um, I'm going to keep watching this one closely because I just, uh, I I imagine that's exactly the case. I don't see them going to the US anytime soon. But it is two, I mean, it's two very interesting markets, two very different markets, right? Mm. I mean, Japan, two thirds of, of payments are still done in cash and Singapore wants to be completely cashless by, you know, 2025. So actually kind of opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of, uh, you know, the, the demographic that they'd be targeting. And so it'd be interesting to see, you know, how they how they fare in each market. They've said, what is it, 55,000 across both or in one or the other? Yeah, and, and I wonder if um, I wonder if those target markets have been, as you say, they are very different. And they're not necessarily ones that would be obvious to choose. I mean, Australia makes a lot more sense when you look at kind of their existing customer base. Um, but I wonder if those markets have been dictated or directed, if you like, by those big Asian stakeholders who are looking to get a mm-hmm. foot in those markets. I think we forget about Japan. I think Japan is a lot further ahead in fintech than we give it credit for. Um, Emily, did you want to? I mean, in? so I know something that I had to leave out of this story just because of time constraints in a newspaper um, is that Revolut has also been working with the Singaporean authorities on building some new payment structures for the country. And they're really, really trying to dig in deep with the government on this one as well, um, which I think will stand them in really good stead going forward. They're really trying to make their mark in the Asian market. And I think having tactics like that will mean that they've come to understand their user demographic there probably a lot more. And help them avoid any of those regulatory slip-ups that they have had in Europe. If you get in there first and you understand exactly how you should be abiding by the rules, then you are much less likely to have to come back and think about it later. And remittance corridors in Asia are massive business. Um, there are lots of localized apps that specialize in some of the remittance corridors. Uh, and, and going via the US dollar, going via the banking system is, is wildly expensive when you're just trying to go to your neighbors. So something that can ease that for people makes a lot of sense. And we, we have seen investors driving, well, maybe it's not driving behavior, but arguably driving behavior before. We saw this with Tandem we discussed last week, now looking at Hong Kong, given they have a nexus of investors there. I wonder if we'll see more of that behavior. But also, you've seen the Asian market as you say, the JFSA, um, the Monetary Authority of Singapore, the HKMA have all been quite aggressive in uh, sandbox policies in things like uh, really uh, active outreach to fintech. Yeah, it's definitely, definitely one to watch. Um, moving on to a story that feels appropriate today. I promise you we did not get uh, um, you know, three female guests on to just for this story. <laughs> um, the next story comes from Fintech Futures. It's that the Swift Institute calls for greater gender diversity in fintech. So the Swift Institute, which was set up by Swift, um, which funds independent research, it's basically offering a 15,000 euro grant to increase gender diversity. So it wants proposals on securing the future of the financial industry via improved gender diversity. 
Um, that is not a snappy title. I'm sure they could have worked on that. Um, but they cite a 2017 McKinsey study, which says that companies in the top quartile for gender diversity on their executive teams were 20, 21% more likely to experience above average profitability than companies in the fourth quartile. And really interesting, given our guest today, I'd really love this take, uh, your take on this. Nearly three quarters of female millennials working in financial services believe that while their organizations talk about diversity, opportunities are not equal for all. Um, so is that is anybody just given I'm looking at three three millennial female millennials in the financial services industry? I mean, I've never personally felt like I haven't had um, an equal opportunity. I'd actually say the fact that I'm a millennial woman who likes to work fintech has actually played out very well for me because <laughs> um, people want you know millennial women on their panels, so uh, you know, and speaking at their events and things. So um, yeah, that's been that's actually has actually been quite um, positive for me. But. Um, no, I was at uh, the Centre for Entrepreneurs on Tuesday and um, someone who I admire very much, Eric Schmidt, was giving the guest lecture. And, you know, he said, you know, you won't win without diversity, inclusion and openness. And he, he sort of said, you know, obviously in the big tech world, um, we do very well in terms of ethnic diversity, um, but obviously very poorly in terms of uh, gender diversity. And he thinks that will actually correct itself in a generation because right now the top 10 universities in the U.S., um, computer science is the number one major and there's a 50-50 split in terms of students studying it so he hopes that in sort of 30 years time really this is not really or maybe even less 20 years time this isn't going to be be much of an issue that is the ideal um, although I would say that it's been 50-50 in computer science for quite a while but what happens is that women drop out so they graduate with those degrees and then there's the studies that show that within the first couple of years, either they feel they're under too much pressure and they don't enjoy their working environments or they step away to have children and just find it too hard to get back in. Um, but it is it is incredibly incredible to see that we have those stats and we can only only help those women stay in the workforce longer. Emily? So maybe it's something then to do with company culture rather than women not having access to getting into these jobs because maybe if they're all graduating with the same degrees as all the men, um, but they're not actually making it into these thick firms, we have to question why it is that happens. And yes, some of it can be to do with childcare, but I'm pretty sure not every woman exits university at age 23 and thinks, right, now it's time <laughs> for a baby. Um, so there's obviously something else at play. And I guess a really good use of this grant would be to find out what that mm -hmm. is. And if you, if you read the uh, the kind of the paper that comes with it, um, the, the questions are directed almost exactly to that point, you know, sort of what are the barriers to attractiveness of the banking industry for female millennials? What is the importance of building flexibility into career? Uh, what can be done to move the financial services industry forward? What examples can we hold up and say that somebody's done well? And I often look at big tech um, as being not always great, frankly, um, but in the last couple of years, it's been under a lot of scrutiny um, for exactly this issue, and rightly so. Um, and it has started, I think, to move the dial in, in some areas. Um, and there are certain things that uh, enabled that. One, a lot of it was just being really, really proactive in hiring, really, really proactive in employer branding, and really, really proactive in putting your hand up and admitting the issue and trying to do it better. Yeah, um, I just want to give a, a shout out to Anthemus here because we um, we're actually fifty six percent women, Ooh. which is pretty good for a fintech firm, but also a VC. Yeah. Um, so it's it's a great place to work. It's great to be um, kind of um, within really inspiring women. Um, I think kind of creating diversity in the workplace is something that we looked at quite a lot when I was at Innovate Finance. Um, and it's, you know, you can you can do things that inspire women, you can run programs, etc. But I think one of the things that a lot of firms said was really important is actually just data and transparency. And I think we've 
started to see that with the move. And, uh, you know, not only are banks having to do it through through um, the regulation, but also, you know, we saw all the fintechs starting to be transparency. I think that is the bare minimum we need is to say, look, you know, obviously we have a problem, we can talk about it. But if we know, then you're holding people accountable. And then you can say, well, now we can we can do some things about it. I think the thing is, as well, a lot of companies will say, will say, we know we have a problem, and we're trying to fix x, y, and z. But a lot of them don't actually a understand, because they have never been a young woman in the workplace. And b they don't really listen. So they don't actually speak to their their own young women, they, they go out there, and they look at the studies, and they look at the surveys and go, right, we need a quota, because this Swift Institute has told us we need a quota. And that is moving the dial forward slowly. But I think what a lot of companies would really benefit for is actually sitting those top brass down with the young men, whether they're senior women or senior men, and saying, what what actually do you need? What do you actually want and what do you actually need? And giving them an environment to say, actually, I really don't feel comfortable when X and Y happens, or I really need A and B to, to get on and I don't feel comfortable asking for it. So I think actually looking internally as well and, and listening properly to the people you already have would, would prevent a lot of the attrition. Um, we've seen some really good stuff coming out of the financial services industry recently as well, actually. Goldman Sachs has been quite a strong pioneer in the last few weeks announcing policies like paying for nannies so that mums can go home to breastfeed their children or enabling women to travel to destinations that suit them so they can be around their kids. Things that women face probably once they're a little bit older, um, but that's probably where they're actually encountering most of their female workforce is at that older age. Um, and it's these kind of things that if companies can afford to do them, can really help women in the workplace and just essentially encourage you to think a bit more positively about, oh, if I'm a young woman, well, I know that's in place for me when I get there, when I choose to do that with my life. So I do know somebody who um, was, was quite embarrassed when her husband got called up by HR because he had gone into a breastfeeding room to take a call. So he'd locked himself into a room that had been set aside for nursing mothers to take a business call. And HR said, you know, you really, really cannot do that. He was mortified, I should add. But, um, but yes... I think that's my point about listening and properly understanding what's actually going on around you. Um, I'm, I'm going to move us on um, to the next story, which is called Investigating Meltdowns. Mm-hmm. Um, the which in- sounds like a great book. <laughs> <laughs> or a band name. Yeah. Um, Grunge, in- maybe? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know. There's a lot of meltdowns around here as well. Um, the Independent um, has uh, the article from The Independent and its bank IT failures are being investigated by a Treasury committee after a series of meltdowns. So the Treasury Select Committee will examine whether banks can prevent disturbances to services following, <laughs> on, the from the, yeah, <laughs> uh, following on from the banking service outages earlier this year. It will look at the common causes of IT failures, how customers lose out and whether the Bank of England and the FCA are able to hold the relevant people to account. As in, do they actually have the powers, which is a really interesting question. Um, since Nikki Morgan became the chair of the committee, um, so she's the one who's sort of sort of pushing forward on this 16 months ago outages have occurred at Equifax TSB Visa Barclays Cash Plus RBS and that's just a few um so the, the the I think the 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 point here is that the services you rely on them. So if, if if banks are going to go out there and say we're going to close your branches, but it's fine because we've got all these online and phone services, and then the online and the phone services go down, it's like well, well, really, you haven't got a leg to stand on. Well, also because they're just always so vague, right? I mean, Visa said it was due to a you know in quotation marks hardware failure. Barclays said a technical 
hitch. RBS said a technical glitch. Um, and, then, and then they always try and justify it by saying, you know, no customers have been left out of pocket, which is just ridiculous because if you're, you know, um, a boss of a company and you've had to spend hours on the phone dealing with a bank manager or you've had to spend hours dealing with your employees who are afraid they're not going to get paid or have to spend hours trying to move cash from one, you know, one account to another account to make the, the you know, the correct transfers, then you've wasted time and your time is worth something. So the sort of, oh, well, you haven't been left out of pocket. It's just, a, it's a cop off. I think it's that impact thing that's really significant with financial services. So Amazon Web Services has been down a couple of times. Facebook's been down a couple of times this year. Uh, we've seen that big tech does get attacked, but the impact is far lower when it happens. If I can't get access to my money, it's very different if I can't get access to my Instagram account. And so like the, the importance for the broader economy when you, know, you can't buy things in shops, when you can't, when commerce can't happen, that does start to grind. It's critical national infrastructure and critical global infrastructure for a reason. Uh, I'm glad they're tough on failures, tough on the causes of failures. Uh, I think we need uh, need that transparency and insight, kind of coming back to that previous point. And there is this cultural thing in banking about like nothing to see here, though it was down and now it's back up. Um, but actually, I think with uh, fintech, you're seeing a different emergence of it went down for these reasons. Here's how we investigated it. Here's how we figured it out. And here's what we did about it. And if you were personally impacted by that, I think that builds trust for you as a consumer to be able to go, or, or you as a business to go, ah, okay, they investigated it seriously. Here's the process they followed and they learned from it and here's what they intend to do about it in the future, which just doesn't seem to happen in larger organizations still, well, culturally. That's, that's what I was going to say. Was, um, I don't disagree with you at all. I think that um, we need to stop fining banks money because they really don't care. It doesn't matter to them in the slightest. We need to go back to ritual humiliation. It needs to be like, okay, you messed up. As a result, we are going to suspend all services. You know, you're not going to be able to do X, Y, and Z. There needs to be some kind of like actual, whether that's, a, you know, we go back to looking Can at we the throw Zuckerberg. tomatoes at CEOs? <laughs> I mean, we, I was going to go back. Actually, I was going to mention the Zuckerberg show trial, you know, putting him in front of all those judges. No, he was never actually answering any proper questions and there was never any... Um, mm -hmm. never any doubt that he was going to walk away but making him sit on a booster cushion and making him sit in front of all those people and have those pictures taken of him I don't, I don't know if that is the answer but finding them isn't working no, but so you've I, got to do something to actually make them wake up and realise you can't just be vague about this yeah. you can't just faff around anymore you can't just tell us oh well we're really sorry but somebody unplugged something in the back end uh, but you didn't lose any money so it's fine but that attitude has to change and I don't know how we change the attitude but that to me is, is what's actually key here well I think they I mean they have been embarrassed I mean TSB was embarrassed the CEO had to step down they had to give evidence in front of the Treasury Select Committee they've seen you know tens of thousands of customers switch <laughs> not, you know, still 1% of all of those who, who are impacted, so a very, very low amount. Um, but I think that's also part of it, right? I mean, what's actually going to make the banks change their behavior is the customers. Yeah. Is the customers actually switching? Because so many times, and TSB is a prime example of that, hardly anyone switched away from them. Hardly but I think anybody the switched away. Know. Hardly anybody switched away, but then is everybody still using their traditional bank in a traditional sense? This, the name of the last news show was the zombie account scenario, um, mm. which, shout out to producer Laura, great show title. But that's an issue, mm. right? In that people don't close bank accounts, they get new ones, and then they leave their old bank with a, a cost of serving uh, an account, but without any profit from that account, without any day-to-day -day spend, without them being top of wallet anymore. And I think there is this sort of difference here between like a, a public big bang migration that was should have been planned better and something just going down that should be sort of regular maintenance and the big bang migration just don't do that people stop doing big bang migrations for the love of god um but it also 
this idea of weekend outages, it's so antiquated now in that we need to be starting to make plans to move well beyond that. And I think it's it's still the legacy um, infrastructure, the technology itself, but also how we've organized around it that's causing a lot of these issues. And if we understand the causes, then we can start to come up with solutions. I, th- I think... I- I think that the other thing to go back to your point about is that I think actually a lot of customers don't necessarily know either. So if you didn't try to use that card at that time, you wouldn't know. So to go back to this idea of like actually really making them think about how they handle it, maybe, you know, if, I mean, the thing about TSB's CEO stepping down, they were due to step down anyway. So that kind of wasn't really any punishment for them. Make them do what uh, Wells Fargo had to do and run full page ads, apologizing and explaining what went wrong. I mean, you know, make sure everybody knows that they messed up. Um, and it does, I don't, I don't even feel harsh suggesting it. <laughs> I feel like letting everybody know because then the customers were, actually, you did let me down. Um, but I think yeah. also, um, I don't know when the tipping point, when the challenger banks will get to a point where the competition is the real threat, right? So at the moment, like you say, you know, they're not losing that many customers. Um, but when they get to see the challenges as a real competition and they're getting this downtime and they're losing customers and switching, I think that's when banks will, will really turn up and say, okay, right, this is really, really affecting our bottom line now. See, I to- don't think they'll see that. I think to them, they won't know that anything's changed. To them, they'll have as many customers as they had. And that that's why this is so dangerous because what you find yourself in the scenario of is suddenly it looks like the challengers have loads of new customers. The fintechs have got loads of customers and they're making money. The big banks still think they have as many customers as they do before. They're just, the dormancy rate has really increased. But it will and affect their bottom line. So it will yeah. affect them, mm, you know. Eventually, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think I think we have different opinions on this, but I would be intrigued to see what the Treasury Select Committee comes up with because it's got to have teeth. Whatever it is, it's got to have teeth. Right. Um, <laughs> slightly weird, but thank you. Sound effects by Simon Taylor. <laughs> <laughs> um, moving us on, the next uh, story comes from Fintech Futures, and I'm going to get this wrong. My Bucks and BB Money are Sim Skin Kings of Africa. Say it again, faster? No. Yeah. <laughs> no, I got it right the first time. I'd like everybody to know, Alex, you must keep that in. I got it right the first time. One take right here. <laughs> um, base, uh, so the story is that Frankfurt's My Bucks and the UK-based BB Money have launched a joint venture aimed at the African microloan market through what's called SimSkin technology. So SimSkins are a hardware developed and owned by BB Money, which consists of a thin plastic membrane that can be attached to any mobile phone SIM card. Uh, once attached to the SIM, it enables the BB Money app to function on any mobile device. Um, that's both smart and feature phones and includes an interoperable mobile wallet. Um, the firms say the mobile wallet has full transactional capabilities and will also include functionality to apply for, obtain and repay microloans. So we actually have a resident expert um, in the African markets, Leslie-Anne Vaughan. So we spoke to her to get her thoughts on this initiative. So let's hear from her now. The thin same technology is really interesting for banks, particularly because it allows banks to get away from the problems of USSD, which we don't use a lot in the UK. And um, so we have to remember lots of numbers to dial. And this allows more of an, uh, an app-based WhatsApp-style experience for, for banks to offer to, to the low-income customers who still use feature phones. The problem is you've got to get that thin SIM onto the phone of the customer. And that means you've got to have an installation process which involves cost and the thin sim itself involves cost. And getting all of that to market in a coherent way, it's about more than just tech. You've got to think about what's your service design to get it into the field. And so, yes, it 
kind of can do away with the problems of lack of interoperability between systems and the lack of understanding of how to remember USSD codes and the like. But at the end of the day, there's other ways to solve those problems as well. And smartphones are coming, but it's interesting to see how this will play out, whether this actually is an answer to the feature phone problem or if there's other ways to solve it over the next few years. So what do we what do we think of this? It's, I think it's an interesting one because it brings us back to financial inclusion and different ways people are being um, incredibly inventive, actually. So if, to us, it seems it's a slightly sort of strange idea, but if it works, it works. I mean, it never even occurred to me that that was a solution to this. Well, I don't know if, I, if I've just misunderstood how it works, but it's sort of like, so you attach something to a SIM card in a phone, but then I'm, and then you can make payments and, and various things. But then I'm, you know, if it's a hardware thing, then where's the, you know, where do the AML checks or KYC checks and stuff come in? So um, I believe, although we'd have to, I'd have to go back and speak to Leslie on about this to be confirmed, um, because it's all through your phone network. So, A, I think the AML and KYC checks are very different because it's a lot of it sort it's of... It's cash in, cash it's out. Cash, yeah, it's, it's done from, like, you, if you think about how M-Pesa works, you take your money to a guy on the street who takes your money and then your phone has credit and then mm. you use your phone credit to pay for things. But then if you lost your phone, then in theory, it's a bit like losing your wallet. You yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Fine. Um, it, I mean, I... Apparently, apparently, this is, um, I think producer Laura did the research here, but apparently this has been done before. Uh, Equitel launched something similar in Kenya and ended up reverting to selling false SIMs mm-hmm. um, and Safari come to them to court claiming it was a breach of their security. They didn't actually win that case. But it is, I think this is one that um, the idea is sound and anything that gets more people using electronic payments, particularly in those African nations where currency has no value anymore for yeah. whatever reason and also currency is hard to get. But it's one of those that I think you have to be on the ground to actually understand the potential impact. Um, microloans, I do know something about, and I do know that microloans are, are something that um, has the potential to be hugely transformative in a lot of African uh, countries because it's literally down to that. You just need the money to buy a goat and one more goat will make a huge difference to your family's income and their ability to support themselves. But actually no bank is going to give you a loan for the money for a goat. Indeed. And and the data that is available from mobile money to be able to make decisions about whether or not you are worth, credit worthy for that loan is is significant. And you're seeing a lot of the telcos now start to open up uh, through the Mojo Loop project to a set of standards by which uh, you're getting interoperability between those telcos. And I think that's hugely, uh, hugely beneficial. And if you've not looked up the Mojo Loop project, uh, I would encourage you to check it out, um, sort of um, backed by the Gates Foundation. This particular case feels the only word for it, and producer Laura said it, fiddly. It, it's really manual, and for something to be adopted, it, had to, it has to feel quite plug-and-play. Um, I know SIM swapping is normal with feature phones, and people have two, three phones, and they swap SIMs between them, so maybe this is just something that would, would catch fire. Um, certainly didn't sound from Leslie Ann's comments like um, that's necessarily going to be the case, um, but, but I applaud anybody who's trying to uh, bring more financial inclusion through microloans that are delivered responsibly and done so in a way that is easy for people to use and consume. Yeah, one that um, I think we would we we're all we would all do well to look to Africa to to see the um, the innovation that's coming out of that continent. But um, to truly understand it, we'll have to get some boots on the ground. Uh, so next up um, is uh, producer Laura has called this "Put It All on FinTech." Um, so this is an article from CB Insights, which explains where top U.S. banks are betting on fintech. So U.S. banks actively investing in fintech startups, we know. Um, to the end of November this year, the top 11 U.S. banks by assets participated in a total of 49 equity rounds to fintech startups, which compares to 19 in 2017 and 33 in 2016. 
so it, the the article points out that sometimes banks invest and partner at the same time to further their internal strategic goals. So the example that's given here is that JP Morgan and Level Up partnered so that JPM could integrate Level Up's order ahead software into Chase Pay, which is their own proprietary solution. Um, strategic in, um, investing is a growing trend. I mean, it says here amongst US banks, but I actually think it's growing across the world. I'm, I'm going to look at Sophie here and get her to give me her expert opinion on this in a minute. But I, I think that this idea that you don't just throw chuck money at things and see where it sticks, actually choosing the partners who you think have a solution that, that aligns with yours and can help you solve a problem and you can help them solve a problem. Banks are starting to realise that makes a lot more sense. And in fact, insurers and asset managers and everybody else. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, it works both ways, right? So that for the banks, um, you know, you've always kind of, how do you approach innovation within fintech? You invest in them, you partner with them, you may run your own sort of internal innovation thing. And I think, at, at the beginning, we weren't seeing these sort of financial returns coming from fintech, so maybe it didn't make sense. But now you have got this really nice um, mesh of strategic and financial. Um, so absolutely makes sense from the bank's point of view. Um, and I think they're getting a bit more clued up about, you know, where, where's a good bet and where's not. Especially is now um, the rise of B2B fintech. And a lot of these guys are, are targeting, you know, some of the problems you know, courses renewal automation. And from from the fintech's point of view, I mean, there's a lot of capital at the moment. And and, and money is not that difficult to get at the moment. So what you need is smart, smart capital. And if you can get an investor that can provide you access to customers or them being the customer, um, and then provide you with that that proof of concept, that use case, so then you can go on and prove it to the market. I mean, yeah, it's, it's win-win for both sides. It's been particularly effective for banks where it's plugged the revenue gap. Um, I look at Santander and Cabbage. I look at Barclays and Market Invoice. Uh, both of those examples focus on the SME segment, which is near and dear to your heart, Val, um, where lending in that sector was woefully underdone by banks, largely because of their processes, not because of a, a desire or any any other thing. But then I went and looked at the UK bank's annual reports and looked at how much of their you know revenue lines um, and what percentage of their you know, kind of annual report was attributable still to anything, any of these fintech partnerships or even the return on equity growth. And it's still way less than 1% in, in each case. Um, so plugging a revenue gap is nice. Um, and and often a lot of banks talk about uh, the uh, the information flow, but how much is that information flow actionable? I would really question that. And how much is it really sort of delivering that uh, that next level of return for those banks? I think uh, banks have talked a good game about partnering with one breath, but we know behind the scenes they would also look to lobby against um, peer to peer lending, for instance. So there's there's this real sort of divergence of like we'll we'll do it where it suits us. Um, but what I thought was really interesting interesting watershed moment about six months ago, Jamie Dimon came out with the comments that basically said, you know, fintech is here. It's a really sort of existential threat. It's now top of the agenda coming out of the financial crisis, and we need to grasp this. So I think moving away from those gaps in the uh, kind of value chain, and they start thinking about, you know, specialist capability. You see now people solving for automation and fraud and um, solving for automation and customer onboarding, but it's never really got into market entry, sector entry, or core operations like that's to me the next step and when fintech really breaks through into that not the traditional vendors but actual fintech then i think we've got something really powerful but also i'll I get think, off my pulpit now. <laughs> <laughs> but also i mean you're you know you're you're seeing obviously much larger investments than there were historically but that's because a lot of the fintechs have matured you know some of these were sort of four or five years old and now they're in the stage like a monzo series e you know they said um obviously we did series b you know um in september so 
there's fintechs kind of getting further down the the the, the scale in terms of um, their growth, and that's then when you're getting to the valuations and the types of investment figures that will make a Goldman Sachs or a City or a JP Morgan suddenly get interested. And we're, well, so I was going to say, we're also not just seeing this trend in banks, but also in other kinds of payment or financial institutions as well. So people like Visa, PayPal, they're all getting on board with major investments these days, and they very rarely ever come without a strategic partnership too. They're always taking a stake alongside those investments, and PayPal's now become notorious for acquiring everything it invests in. So whenever I meet a company that took PayPal money, I'm always like, when? how long until you're sold? <laughs> yeah. I mean, the interesting one there, of course, is that the CMA have come back and said that PayPal probably can't apply acquire Izettle. They're like, no, we don't think so because it's it's hoovering up competition. Um, but I was going to talk to the industry that's dear to my heart, which is insurance. Um, if you don't listen to InsureTech Insider, you very much should. Available um, on iTunes now. <laughs> <laughs> um, but again, the insurers, it was interesting to me, the insurers were, were much slower to get off the starting line than the banks when it came to working with and investing in startups. But actually, I very, very rarely see an insurer invest without a strategic partnership. And the ones to really watch in that space are the reinsurers, um, Yes. Who are so the insurers? Insurance basically has three bits. There's like the distribution bit, the people who do the uh, the underwriting, and the people who underwrite the underwriters. And it's these big guys at the back who've got quite a lot of capital and are looking for new ways to to diversify their own investments, but are also thinking, okay, well, we can invest in these startups and we can step over the middle guys. In fact, we might even step over both of them, the middle guys and the distributors, and then all of a sudden we have control of the entire ecosystem. But that's such. Uh, that's such an interesting way of thinking that I just don't think they would have come to had they not watched the the fintech, the payments, the bank space play out like that. It really changes the market dynamics. The other interesting one, um, aside from PayPal, that came to my mind was Stripe. Uh, Stripe, of course, invested in Monzo. Uh, they turn up in a lot of cap tables and the Collison brothers seem to uh, really have an appetite to understand what's happening in fintech and reinvest some of their own growth. Uh, so you're not only seeing the banks in the space, but the larger fintechs now reinvesting that pool of capital. And what does that mean for growth in the next generation of fintechs and i wonder when we'll start seeing you know real percentages i've never really seen that study that says you know what percentage of the banking industry what percentage of the insurance industry is now arguably fronted by a fintech brand and what percentage of those revenues are there because you could argue it's mainstream yeah, I mean, it's definitely one that that's definitely a trend we're going to keep watching. I don't think that's going away anytime soon, unlike us who are heading off for a quick break, but we'll be back very shortly. How can Sam afford the latest smartphone while she's at university? It must cost her parents a fortune to send her there. Oh, she's fine. She can just borrow the cash and pay it back when she bags a high-powered graduate job. Well, the tuition fees alone must be nearly £30,000. Well, she'll be earning a lot more than that after a couple of years. But imagine starting your career with £60,000 worth of debt. Hmm. Yeah, you could buy plenty of smartphones with that. Millennials. Future consumers or debt slaves. Don't settle for black or white. For the full perspective, turn to the Financial Times. Visit ft.com forward slash join us. Today, customers are demanding greater value from financial services. They expect more agility, innovation and security than ever before. Most financial institutions are held back by the shackles of closed legacy systems that limit transparency, block innovation and ignore customers' demands. Finastra has a bold vision to unlock the potential of people and business. They've created a platform for open innovation in the world of financial services with FusionFabric.cloud. Their solutions span retail, 
transaction lending, and treasury and capital markets on-premise and in the cloud. Start your transformation journey today with Finastra. Welcome back to Fintech Insider from 11FS. So, the nominations for the British Bank Awards 2019 has now been released. For the first time, the awards will have categories just for vendors, and one of them is Consultancy of the Year. And guess who's been invited to take part? If only we knew a consultancy. Mm. Um, maybe a challenger consultancy. Where would you find one of those? Well, they've asked 11 of us to take part. That's so. not right. <laughs> <laughs> no, surely not. So last year's <laughs> awards saw the likes of Starling Bank, Money Farm, Bud and Wise Alpha receive great accolades and we would love to join them. Yeah, you... it's not a party. Like, I want to get into the party. Like, I feel left out. Don't make me feel left out. Well, if you please. want if you want Simon to feel included <laughs> and if you love the work that we do at 11 of us, then we'd love to have your vote. Just head over to bit.ly forward slash 11FS2019. That's bit.ly forward slash 11FS2019 to put our name in. And you know, just if you've got your phone in your hand right now and you're commuting, that's just bit.ly forward slash 11FS2019. <laughs> just, just if you do have your phone in your hand. If you don't have your phone in your hand, then, you know, write it down or go to your laptop and still do it. <laughs> <laughs> and now on with the show. So the next story comes from payments.com and the headline is that Venmo payment fraud leads to $40 million in losses. So the losses occurred in the first three months of 2018, according to internal documents that the Wall Street Journal reviewed. So the expenses were due to fraudulent transactions, otherwise known as the transaction loss rate, increased to 0.4% of overall volume at Venmo in March, compared to 0.25% in January. So the transaction loss rate includes losses due to fraudulent charges. Um, Venmo's fraud woes haven't been reported before. I mean, they've been talked about, but we haven't had the numbers before. Um, it, back in March, uh, Venmo's response was to suspend instant fund transfers, and it kicked off users that algorithms found to be suspicious. That always makes me wary. Um, it also stopped enabling customers to send and receive money through the website. So um, it's, it's a pretty standard uh, response. They're very similar to many banks. Like if you lose money, they'll reimburse you, and they'll try and work out you know where the fraud's coming from. But the fact that the rate went up rather than down, given that Venmo is not exactly a brand new market entrant, is um, Interesting, I think. Uh, anybody have any thoughts on this one? Well, I mean, I think, you know, it, well, there's, there's not that many alternatives, but obviously the likes of Square Cash and Apple Pay Cash are, are coming, you know, I mean, I know Square launched in the UK earlier this year. So just these sorts of things will just make customers, I think, more likely to say, OK, I'm going to try someone else um, because well, in the customer security and you're having, whether it's um, British Airways or... or um, LinkedIn, you might have you know data breaches, things like that. So I think people are just very conscious of their security and they want to go with a provider that's going to be more secure. So there are now more alternatives. Yeah, it begs the question, how how did they not tighten up? So presumably the, the losses increased in line with the scale. The, the more people were making the more payments, the more they lost. But how did they not prepare for that? Because that feels like something that a payments company should be aware of. But even if they increased in line with the scale, this is measured in terms of a percentage. So it's gone from 0.25% to 0.4%. So it's it's rising faster than they're acquiring customers. So there's definitely something there. I mean, maybe that's to do with, for example, market um, popularity. People are learning more about Venmo, so more fraud is attracted to it through that. But in general, surely you'd think that would stay the same. So that's an incredibly low number by banking industry averages. Like, if you work in a fraud team, you know that's true. Um, like, And they also, in Q3 um, 2018, they did uh, 17, just show of $17.5 billion in uh, payment value. So, 
like let's keep this in context. Yes, it's gone up, but is that a blip? Like somebody's leaked that a thing happened that could be a seasonal move. Um, or and this is a company that's increasing its customer base, increasing its share of wallet. Um, has an an industry wide incredibly low volume of fraud, even with a, a recent increase. Yes, it'd be a worrying trend if it continued, and we don't want more fraud. But like, let's keep this in context. And it's come from the Wall Street Journal, which does love an expose. Loves an expose and might be quite close to some bank sources who might not like these fintech things. Just just speculating. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I think that, um, you know, any headline that says fraud, you, as you say, you kind of, it makes you think twice about signing up. But I think if actually if you've used the service and you haven't experienced any fraud, it's very much like I was saying earlier about the TSB outage. You're like, well, meh. It hasn't affected me yet. I mean, when it does affect you, yes, you're absolutely right. You're likely to look for alternative. But in the meantime... Yeah, I mean, I, I did that. Uh, I did. I think it was actually on the show that you guys mentioned the the website you can go to where you can see where your data ha- or like God. where you've been hacked. Have I been pwned? Yeah. Yes, have I? Exactly. So I have through the LinkedIn hack. I've had um. my, my data been sold. My, my well, we we actually stuff. we actually spoke to a US expert who um, is in the depth of this market, if you, if you like, Sam Moore, to get his thoughts on Venmo's fraud issues. So let's hear from him now. So Venmo here in the U.S. is the um, P2P sweetheart of all of my kids. So if you're you're, um, in college and you need money, you hit your parents up via Venmo. That's pretty normal. It's actually a verb over here where you will say Venmo me. Now, fraud's always been an issue when it comes to Venmo, um, in all honesty, uh, mostly when it comes to refunding transactions. What is most interesting when you dig down into the numbers, there's quite a few things that stood out. One is that mainly you use Venmo via the mobile app. That's pretty normal. I didn't even realize you could use a website for that. And website activity only accounts for about 2% of their transactions, and yet it accounted for 15% of the fraud. So Venmo actually took the step of uh, killing the website, which I thought was pretty interesting. Um, So I'm sure there's some grandparents and parents now that are ticked off that they can't use that. The other piece they had was an instant transfer feature. They were um, actually had told their users they could send funds to the bank accounts, they'd receive them within um, a half hour. They had teased that, they then suspended it, and now they turned it off. So I think we know a couple of areas where the fraud was taking place. Again, it's very interesting because this is a fintech darling here in the U.S., and obviously the critics all stand up and make noise when you see a story like this. So we'll see where this goes. We always know and, and have always known that Venmo is kind of a loss leader, if you will, for PayPal. It'll be fascinating over the next couple months to see what happens with it. Thank you very much, Sam. So the next story is a slightly creepy headline, and it's an even creepier story. They're watching you. Uh, so Beijing will judge every resident based on their behavior by the end of 2020. This is a story from Bloomberg. I'd be so screwed. Um, so <laughs> Beijing is set to adopt a lifelong points program by 2021, in fact, that assigns personalized ratings for each resident. So um, the city will pull data from several departments to reward and punish some 22 million citizens based on their actions and reputations. Um, those with better social credit will get green channel benefits, such as access to credit, while those with low scores will find life more difficult. So um, they'll be banned from doing things like booking train tickets and taking buses. Um, different agencies will link databases to get a more detailed picture of every resident's interactions across a huge swathe of services. Um, And this is basically being facilitated by apps such as WeChat and Alipay. 
Um, Beijing's efforts are the most ambitious yet, but um, there are more than a dozen cities moving ahead with similar programs. And uh, really interestingly, um, I, I spoke to one of my colleagues, uh, Brandon, um, who's worked over in Hong Kong, actually. But he said that the way that the People's Bank of China introduces programs like this is they say that it has to be done. And then they set the cities um, off against each other. They basically say whoever gets their first wins X prize. So the individual cities have um, a motivation to get these these programs up and running because effectively the central government, the People's Bank of China is effectively, you know, mm. running the country, um, says off you go, whoever gets their first wins our approval and, and you quite want the People's Bank of China approval apparently. Mm. I mean, I'm just terrified. But. Yeah, I was like, isn't the only reaction to this story like, ah! Well, it's very, it's, it's very Black Mirror, isn't it? I mean, you know, there's, I remember the episode where the woman's trying to like get her score up so that she can go and live in this new part of town. And Series then, three, episode one. Yeah. <laughs> Do you actually know that? Yeah. Wow. It was, it was a very good episode. It was very interesting. But I mean, like, you know, it could be, it could be in. Yeah, I guess you could argue it could be great for financial inclusion because people who are well behaved will then, you know, be able to get, um, you know, better interest rates at banks. They'll be able to, you know, get discounts on energy bills. They'll be able to rent things without deposits. But it could also be really bad for financial inclusion because, you know, I don't know. Well, like, just like in that episode, you're having a bad day one day. You, you know, you shout at someone or you, you, you know, forget to, you, you forget to, you know, swipe your ticket in the the train, and then suddenly you're going to be, you're going to be, you know, seeing your score go down, and you, you'll have certain benefits revoked. There's just something creepy about the central government deciding what good behavior and bad behavior is rather than uh, and then also like if if credit score is good behavior in whose interests mm. right so it, it's really um i think moving from a credit score to uh what's what's in the mutual interests of both parties both the the lender and the uh, the person having money lent to them that feels more fair to the individual uh, and and none of these systems seem to have that kind of financial literacy education piece built into it which would actually make it make more sense which is you know look the system is what it is we're not going to rip and replace that overnight but if you want to improve your own life situation here's a toolkit to be able to do that which we have started to see more of so what I was going to say is interesting as well is that actually if you're banning for people taking buses and trains, then you might actually be stopping them going to work or getting mm -hmm. their an education or actually improving their score because, you know, you get stuck in that horrible, vicious cycle that we see all over the world. That Once people are, are stuck in bad financial habits, it's incredibly hard to get out of them. This is even worse. It's like bad bad lifestyle habits if you like well i think you can still get the train ticket but you can't get first class tickets and then if you want to go traveling you know so you can you can only get um uh, plane tickets for you know domestic flights mm. or you know if you're if you have a good score then you can see your you know visa to europe be moved to the top of the line kind of things or the front of the queue so but even that is just, it's but, just but even then, if, you've, if you as you say if you've had a terrible you know terrible week or something awful happened and your score's negative and yet you're awarded i don't know a scholarship to study at an overseas university but you're not allowed to get on the plane does that not feel somewhat i mean that's a very specific use case I, I do accept that but it does feel sort of hindering rather than you know helping it almost feels like it opens itself up to bribery immediately <laughs> because these are then people None of that, that are, in china yeah well these are then people that are in control of your life and what you can and can't do it's not like a credit score where it's an algorithm it's a machine there's not much you can do to affect that even if you're a super super rich person who's for some reason had a bad credit score um <laughs> but in, in this case, it's actual bodies that are in charge of your life, and just none of it sounds good. Well, I just actually, you just reminded me that you uh, made me think of there was um, a story about a famous Chinese actress who was incredibly popular in oh, China, yeah. mm. and she um, 
somehow ended up with a very low score, which you would think wouldn't be possible given that she was, you know, popular and working and everything else. And she disappeared for weeks on end. Like, I mean, that's how creepy we're talking. Um, She came back and said it was her tax bills. I mean... God, Pedro Marcy isn't listening. Um, I'm going to move us on because um, I'm, I'm a little bit disturbed by that. But if you do want to hear more about social scoring and its potential impact on our digital identity, please go listen to episode 246 um, with Ryan Garner, one of my colleagues. Um, spoiler, Ryan's not a fan of this either. So our and finally story today is brilliant. Um, it comes from the, the link that's been put in here is from Catering Today. It was actually reported that, thank you, thank you, Darnham, the show, <laughs> who put the links in the show today. Um, the story is that Costa and Barclay Card have released the UK first contactless reusable cup. So Costa Coffee has partnered with Barclay Card to launch a reusable contactless coffee cup, which is said to be the first of its kind in the UK. So the clever cup that is what it's called, is a contactless cup. Yes, we've got that. Um, and basically, you can use it for transa- it's NFC transactions. It's got an NFC chip in the base, um, which is, um, in fact, a silicon base, which I checked with, uh, with an ex-colleague of mine, James Cook, over at the Telegraph, and he says you can, it is dishwasher proof, so it's fine. Thanks, nobody, that, Sarah. Yeah, nobody worry about that. <laughs> um, so that was my major concern. My other major concern was if my chip's on the bottom of my cup and I try and put it on the top of the machine, how likely is the person on the other side of the cash register going to end up covered in latte? Basically, I, I can't work out I the mechanics. I assume I paid before yeah, it's got latte you paid in it, right? No, no, but then but the idea is that you pay with it and then you go on the tube with it and you get on the tube. And then in the pictures, no. they, they, you then use it as your way to pay. Oh, no. So you have your coffee in your hand and then you get to the tube and you put the coffee cup on the oyster thing and it lets you in and then you're like, I don't know... Um, but Stop also, and buy a croissant also, somewhere else and you try and pay with the... Uh. This is what Apple Watches are meant to solve. You don't need a coffee cup to do that. No, I completely agree. I 100% yeah. agree. Well, I mean, it wasn't, you've got your phone, you've got, you know, again, this is a sort of like I solving a non-problem. You'd have to take I mean, all those things out of your pockets so it, it, it's just carrying your cup. But yeah, we but got you, someone at 8am and it was not an attractive looking cup either can i just say like if you're gonna do this do it well don't don't have a hideous cup that nobody wants to use and uh and uh, one thing shout out going back to the catering today thing um it's very have i got news for you um really really cool (laughs) that's for the british listeners if you're not british google it um but this is topped up by the barclays bpay app does anybody remember barclays bpay well, so somebody actually, and funnily enough, somebody in the office said to me, Sarah, didn't, wasn't BPay a wristband? And I was like, yes, oh, and a yeah. sticker and a key ring. And they were like, you're what now? And I was like, yeah, exactly. That's exactly what the, re- that's the correct reaction. See, what would be a cool thing of this is what the Swedish company Biohacks does, where they, you know, I mean, they, they kind of do like open office days and about 30 people, there's a sort of a, a waiting list, mm. but they have sort of have, okay, we'll, we'll do 30 chips per Per open office. You put the chip they, in your hand. Yeah, they put it like in between your thumb and your forefinger. See, that's cool. It's like the grain of rice so that when you're like the size of a grain of rice. So that then when you I'm go, a cyborg. Yeah. And you can go like on the and tube and so, so a rider from BuzzFeed did it. That would be amazing. And you about? wouldn't have to use BPay to do it. I was say that I feel like this is a good branding opportunity for you guys. What about 11FS pint glasses? Oh, no, don't give them any more ideas. Wine glasses pay as you... I'm not going to be taking a wine glass on the tube, I think. I might. Speak for yourself. (laughs) Uh, After this story, I certainly will be. So Barclays BP originally launched as a wristband that you had to pay £30 for the privilege to own, then create an account on a website so that you could top it up. And then what you were going to do with this £30 wristband was buy things that you wouldn't otherwise buy with a card that you didn't have to pay for. Uh, They very quickly realised that their, their business case... Uh, kind of making uh, that made sense in the spreadsheet 
revenue model of, of charging that fee didn't stack up when nobody used the thing and nobody bought the thing and nobody wanted the thing. So they started giving it away for free and people thought it was going to be the thing that you used at festivals. Still didn't happen. This is the ultimate example of corporate innovation zombie projects that just won't die. Like, kill it. It's gone it's, back round to the same thing. You have to pay for it again now. Just stop it. Stop it, stop it, stop it, please. <laughs> no, Nobody wants a coffee cup you can pay with. <laughs> and on that note, that wraps up this week's show. Um, thank you so much to all our guests for joining us. Uh, where can people find out more about you, Val? Uh, you can find me on Twitter or LinkedIn, Val Christensen. And if you want to find out more about Oak North, it's oaknorth.com. Perfect. Emily, how about you? So you can read my stories on cityam.com slash Emily Nicole, or you can find me on Twitter as well, Emily J. Nicole. Perfect. Sophie? Um, so you can find me on Twitter at Sophie Winwood, or um, if you're a fintech seeking investment, uh, you can email me, sophie at anthemus.com. Brilliant. Nice plug. <laughs> Simon, what are you going to give me? Are you going to give me something that I understand, or are you going to give me a gaming logon that I have to ask you to explain? No, you'd mostly find me probably outside of Barclays brand shouting at them to stop it. <laughs> um, you'd also found, find me at bit.ly forward slash 11FS2019, um, which if you haven't done that yet, here's a friendly reminder to do it. And you can bug me on Twitter at SYTaylor for being really cheeky. Um, and as for me, you can find me on Twitter at Sarah Kashansky. You can also find me on Unsure Tech Insider, which is available on iTunes. <laughs> Cheap plugs. Yes. <laughs> um, what do you think of today's stories? So if you like them, didn't like them, you're kind of a bit mad about them, do let us know on Twitter at Fintech Insiders. And don't forget, if you love the show, be sure to leave us a review. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye. 